the roots of today's passage reach all the way back to the Garden of Eden, to the pristine perfection of creation when all was young and vibrant and bursting with life and joy. In the beginning, there was heaven on earth. Everything shone with the radiance of a spring morning. The the lush grass was wet with dew, brilliant flowers opened to dazzle with color in the morning sun. The trees were abundant with fruit, every leaf verdant, every branch strong. And everywhere there was life, the earth teemed with it. The seas, the air, the forests, creatures of every shape and size bearing testimony to the wisdom and the power and the boundless creativity of their creator. And then God formed man from the dust of the earth and fashioned him in his own image. And he breathed into man the breath of life and man became a living soul. And from the man, God formed a woman, the perfect complement. And he united them in a holy covenant union and he placed within them the procreative potential for an entire race. And there in this primordial paradise, the first movement of God's symphony was complete. Eden was more than a garden. It was a temple. It was a place where God dwelt among his people. They were his image bearers, uniquely created for fellowship with the divine, possessing as no other creature a soul capable of knowing and loving and trusting and worshiping and enjoying their creator. And there in this prehistoric garden temple, the man and the woman did just that. They walked with their God. But God's sovereign symphony had a second movement. And this one was composed in a minor key. The origins of the second movement are of old and they are shrouded in mystery. For before the creation of the earth, God had created an angel. An angel of light, a powerful and glorious creature. But in time, this angel became infatuated with his own glory and he turned away from the glory of God and he desired to become like God and he rebelled and he was cast from God's presence and condemned to an existence of hatred and rage and damnation. And this glorious angel of light became a grotesque creature of darkness, a dragon, a deceiver and a murderer. His name is Satan, and he has an important role to play in the symphony of God's glory. In the midst of his garden temple, God had planted two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And both trees existed as a visible representation of God's sovereign prerogative. To God alone belongs the right to bestow life. And to God alone belongs the right to know, that is, to judge between good and evil. In the garden, God made a covenant with the man, saying, trust me, obey me, walk before me in righteousness, and I will grant you to eat of the tree of life and live forever in my presence, blameless with great joy. 
but turn from me and grasp for that which does not belong to you. Namely, the right to rule as God signified in this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and you will surely die. And it's at that point that we pick up the narrative in Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband who was with her and he ate. You will be like God, hissed the serpent with his forked tongue. You won't need God to tell you what is good and evil, what is true and false, what is right and wrong. You will judge such things for yourself. You will see what God sees. You will know what God knows. You will be a God unto yourself. And the man and the woman believed Satan's lie. So enamored were they with the thoughts of their own glory. But God had not lied. As the serpent did. And in the moment that Adam and Eve ate from the tree, the covenant with God was broken and death set in. Like a cancer, sin metastasized through the whole of their being, their body and their soul. No longer able to abide God's presence, they hid from him. And they tried in vain to cover their sin and their shame with garments of their own making. As though fig leaves could hide their unrighteousness from the eyes of God. But God summoned them out and into his presence where he cursed them. And he cast them from his garden temple and he condemned them and their posterity to live out their days east of Eden, which signifies away from the presence of God and to expend their days in toil and in misery until they should return to the ground from whence they came. Death and damnation were the wages of their sin. But before he executed this just punishment for their betrayal, God spoke a word of promise. He spoke a word of hope. He spoke a gospel. He said, I will put enmity between you, that is the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God said that the serpent will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, but that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Victory over Satan would come through the son of man, but not without the shedding of blood, not without suffering, not without death. 
God then signified his promise to the man and the woman by slaughtering a lamb and clothing the man and the woman in its skins, showing them that the way back into his presence was through faith in a promise, the blood of a sacrifice, and coverings which the righteous God alone provides for those who trust him. That's the story of Genesis 1 through 3. And the rest of the Bible is the outworking of those opening chapters. The rest of the Bible is the realization of both the curse and the promise. All of humanity, you and me, we are born and we live out our lives east of Eden, away from the presence of God, under the curse of God's judgment. Some of us have believed that promise, and we've set our hope On a redeemer who has come. These are the seed of the woman in God's promise. The children of promise. The children of grace. Others of us have believed the lie. And we've set our hope in our own autonomy. Our own self-sovereignty. Trying desperately to be our own God. These are the seed of the serpent. The children of law. The children of wrath. And all of human history, from Cain and Abel down to this very day, is the story of the conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, the children of law and the children of promise. In the very first generation after the fall, this conflict played out as Cain rose up and slew his brother Abel. According to the Apostle John, Cain was of the evil one. That is, he was of the seed of the serpent. And he murdered his brother. And John asks, why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, you seed of the woman, you children of promise. Don't be surprised that the world, that is, the seed of the serpent, hates you. And desires your death and downfall. And on and on it went throughout the generations. The seed of the serpent, the children of Satan, raging against the seed of the woman, the children of God. Raging with a malice continually whispered into their ears and into their hearts by the father of lies himself. But then in the fullness of time, the appointed generation came and the seed of the woman appeared. Galatians 4, 4, but when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. Or as John says, the reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, that is, to crush his head. Jesus is the promised seed of the woman that God foretold in Genesis 3.15. And when he appeared, he did battle against the evil one. That's what all of those exorcisms in the Gospels are all about. 
And he decisively defeated Satan by his death and resurrection. So Paul writes in Colossians 2.13, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He crushed the serpent's head through his death on the cross. That is through the bruising of his heel. Or Hebrews 2.14, since therefore the children, that is the seed of the woman, share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and then deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So what we learn from the New Testament is that Christ decisively defeated Satan on behalf of the children of promise, that is the seed of the woman, when he died for our sins upon the cross. When Jesus bore our sins in his body unto death, he took the record of our debt to the law and the righteousness and the justice of God, the record of all of our sins and all of our blasphemies and all of our vain attempts to be like God. He took all of it and he placed it under the wrath and judgment of God and he nailed it to the cross, having written on it, paid in full with the ink of his own shed blood. And at that point, Satan lost any rightful claim over the children of promise, over the seed of the woman. He has no authority in the church. He has no power to damn those whose debt Christ has paid. At the cross, Jesus placed his heel on the head of the serpent. But he's not yet crushed it. That awaits the final judgment. When according to Revelation 20 and verse 10, the devil who had deceived them, that is the nations, will be thrown into the lake of fire to be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's when the seed of the woman will finally crush the head of the serpent. So Christ decisively defeated Satan at the cross, but he will finally crush Satan at the final judgment. In the meantime, in this 2,000 year now, between the first coming and the second coming of Christ, Satan and his seed, his offspring, continue to wage war against the saints, the offspring of the woman. But he does so with the Son of Man's foot on his neck. That's what today's passage is all about. With that biblical, theological foundation in place, I want to read to you again Romans 16, 17 to 20. And I want you to see if you can hear the echoes of Eden in Paul's words. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. 
For your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Paul has Genesis 3 in mind when he writes this paragraph. Particularly, he has Genesis 3.15 in mind. He sees the Roman church, that is the seed of the woman, locked in a battle with the serpent and with his seed. And he writes to warn them of this battle, to exhort them to resist the devil's deceitful tactics and to encourage them that the battle's not going to endure forever. It has an end point. And that end point is coming soon. So let's take Paul's words in Romans 16, 17 to 20, and let's apply them to First Baptist Nixa. We're the seed of the woman. And we're in a war against the devil and his offspring. And as this battle rages, we need to be wise as to what is good. And we need to be innocent as to what is evil. And we need to remain steadfast in our hope and the promise that the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath our feet. First this morning, I want to point out that Paul seeks to unmask Satan's ministers. Okay, He's preparing us for this battle. And he does so first by unmasking Satan's ministers. You know, remember that the enmity that God promised in Genesis 3.15 was not just between the serpent and the woman, but between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, the children of the devil and the children of the church. Satan does not just slither into churches in the form of a serpent and utter his lies the same way he slithered into that garden long ago. In this age, Satan disseminates his lies by proxy, by means of false teachers, false brethren, false children who look like the offspring of the woman, but really are the offspring of the snake. And they're not always easy to spot. In fact, they're, they're quite adept at disguising themselves. So good are they at the disguising themselves that they very often even deceive themselves into thinking that they're the seed of the woman. Paul warned the Corinthian church of this very thing, 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen. Such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan, that is, their father, disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise that his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. So the seed of the serpent, these false teachers, these false brethren, they they infiltrate the church just as the serpent infiltrated the garden temple. And they attempt to spread the lies of Satan. They say things like, has God really said And they do so in order to destroy the children's souls, just as Satan did. And Paul warns the Roman church to watch out for them, to be on guard against them. But they're slippery. They're disguised. So how can the church recognize these spawns of Satan? 
Well, Paul gives us four signs of a false teacher. That is four signs of a seed of the serpent. And we, the church, the offspring of the woman, need to be on our guard against them. Number one, he says they cause separations in the church. Division is the aim of false teaching. If you'll notice, it was the guile of Satan, the deception of Satan that drove a wedge between Adam and Eve in the garden. Turn them against one another. The same thing happens in churches. And there's a reason for this, which is that false teachers, they can't destroy the whole church. Not if it's a true church, any more that a pack of wolves can take down a whole herd of elk. The herd is too fast, too strong, too fierce. So what do wolves do? Well, they seek to split off one or two of the weakest members of the herd. They divide them from the strong, and that's where they focus their attack. And that's precisely what Paul warned the Ephesian elders about shortly after he wrote the book of Romans, I might add, around 57 AD, when he said to them, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them, to to split them off from the herd. See, false teachers are like wolves. They seek to devour sheep. They don't attack the whole flock. That would be impossible. A true sheep cannot be finally deceived by false teaching because Jesus says my sheep know my voice and they listen to me and they follow me. They will not listen to the voice of strangers, but they will flee from the stranger. Jesus warned that throughout this age, false Christs and false prophets will arise and they will perform signs and wonders so as to lead astray even the elect, he says, if that were possible, Matthew 24, 24. But it's not possible. It is not the elect who are devoured by the wolves. It's the weak, the stragglers, the hangers-on to the fringe of the flock. It is they who are susceptible, who know not the voice of their shepherd. It is they whom the wolves seek to separate from the rest. It is they whom the wolves devour. So Paul says, watch out for those who come into your midst and they cause divisions, who do not cherish the unity of the church, who crave controversy and stir up conflict. They're the ones who are going to leave a path of destruction in their wake. They're forever creating distinctions between us and them. Those who believe this and those who don't. Those who practice this and those who don't. Those who abstain and those who don't. Rather than finding unity in the gospel of Christ, they create division over secondary or tertiary issues. And Paul's admonition is clear. Watch out for them and avoid them. And I might add... Guard the weak. Don't let them be divided from the rest of the flock. Second, Paul says, 
These false teachers make the gospel a scandal to the church. He says they create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Literally, he says they create stumbling blocks against the doctrine you have learned. Now that word translated obstacles or stumbling blocks is the Greek word scandalon, from which we get our English word scandal. Hence, to create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you have been taught means to make the gospel a scandal to the church. And I think Paul's using something of a play on words here because Paul liked to glory in the scandal or the offense of the cross. In Romans 9.33, for instance, he refers to Jesus as the rock of offense. He's the rock of scandal. In 1 Corinthians 1.23, he calls the gospel of Christ crucified a scandal, a stumbling block, an offense to the Jews. In Galatians 5.11, he calls the cross of Christ a scandal that must not be removed from the message of the gospel, lest the gospel and the salvation that it declares be lost. In other words, the gospel of Christ crucified is an offense to unbelievers. They stumble over it. It's an obstacle to their prideful autonomy and self-sovereignty. Unbelievers refuse to admit that their sin is deserving of the wrath and judgment of God. They refuse to admit that they cannot lift a finger towards establishing their own righteousness before God. They refuse to believe that God decides the destinies of men, not autonomous human will. They refuse to believe that the God of their own imagination, the God that they've created in their own image, the God who winks at their sin, the God who is not holy and is not sovereign and is not just and possesses no wrath is not the God of the Bible, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Unbelievers have no idea what to do with the cross. Or how to make any sense of it. So they stumble over it. The cross is to them an offense that they would rather not talk about. The gospel is a scandal to the unbelieving world. And what Satan tries to do through his ministers is make the gospel a scandal to the church as well. So these are the voices constantly crying out that the church needs to update its doctrine. That this religion of blood and wrath and atonement and righteousness and covenant and curses and election and reprobation and Satan and demons and heaven and hell. That all may have made sense in a previous generation, maybe in the first century, but not in our post-enlightenment, rationalistic, scientific age of atoms and molecules and Darwin and DNA and cell phones and, and supercomputers and Hubble telescopes and particle accelerators. If the church wishes to remain relevant in today's world, it needs to answer questions the culture is actually asking. And nobody in our culture is asking how to get right with God. They wouldn't. Because the prevailing assumption of our culture is that everyone is already right with God. In fact, it is impossible to be wrong with such a God, a God who is not holy and has no wrath. So false teachers, the seed of the serpent, are those who remind the church incessantly of its supposed irrelevance. 
and who seek to point out the offensiveness of our exclusive, bigoted doctrine. Thus making it an offense, a scandal in the eyes of the church instead of in the eyes of the world. And against such false brethren, Paul says, watch out, avoid them. Which can only mean in the context of a church, cast them away from you. Have nothing to do with them. The gospel is too important to allow people into the church who constantly try to pick at it or discredit it or remove portions of it. Third, Paul says, they serve their fleshly appetites rather than the Lord Christ. Verse 18. Literally, Paul says, for such people do not serve our Lord Christ, but rather their own belly. Which means that Underneath their smooth, sophisticated exterior, you will find within a fundamental consuming commitment, and it is not to Christ, it's to their own flesh. They're ruled by their appetites. And this doesn't have to mean that they harbor secret addictions to sex or food or alcohol or drugs or money or some other lust of the flesh. It could mean that. It often does mean that. But it doesn't have to. Heresy is not at root an intellectual problem. At root, it's a moral problem. A heretic has a vested interest in the Bible not being true, in judgment not being real, in God not being holy. This is why Piper says, behind serious false teaching, we almost always find not merely intellectual mistakes, but worldly passions enslaving the mind. But I agree with one commentator who writes that belly in this phrase, fleshly appetites, means here what flesh so often means in Paul's writings, namely egocentrism, which is a big word, but it means ego or self-centeredness. It's, it's making myself the center of my own universe. It's making a God of myself. It's serving myself rather than Christ. And the reason I'm attracted to this view is that Paul is speaking of matters other than merely food and sex and other bodily pleasures. I think he has Genesis 3 in the background of his mind when he's writing against false teachers. And what did Satan say to Eve in the garden? What was his temptation? It wasn't sex. It wasn't food. You will be like God, he said. And that was the hook that got her. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that it was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband who was with her and he ate. It wasn't food that Eve craved. She had plenty of that. It was godhood. It was autonomy. It was to place herself at the center of her own affections and adoration. So don't listen to people who make a god of themselves. Don't even let them into the church, Paul says. 
They don't serve our Lord Christ. They serve their bellies. They serve themselves. And in doing so, unwittingly, they serve Satan. Fourth, Paul says, they are smooth talkers and flatterers. For by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Again, you can hear the hissing voice of the serpent in these words. You will be like God. Look at you, Satan said. You're glorious. You so far excel anything else in the rest of creation. You think like God. You talk like God. You reason like God. You can be like God. And then you won't need God. Take. Eat. You deserve it. And notice, it's not the wise who are deceived, Paul says. It's the naive. It's not the strong. It's the weak. It's not the mature. It's the young. It was not Adam. It was Eve. And what is Paul's exhortation? Watch out for these servants of Satan, these seeds of the serpent, and avoid them, which means cast them out of the church Is that not what Adam should have done as soon as Satan slithered into his garden temple? Had he not been charged by the Lord God himself, not only to work the garden, but to keep it, shamar. It's a word which means guard, watch, protect. Adam, I want you to work this garden and I want you to protect it. From whom do you think? From lying snakes. Adam's responsibility was to guard the garden temple and his wife, whom God had given him, from lying snakes, but he failed. He was there, verse 6 of Genesis 3 says, when Satan spoke to Eve. But instead of crushing the serpent under his foot like he should have done, he listened to Satan's lies. He took from the tree and he ate. Paul says to the church at Rome and to First Baptist Nixa, don't make the same mistake. Don't countenance false teachers who speak with a forked tongue in the language of their father. Cast them out. Secondly, Paul highlights Satan's tactics. It was the same as in the garden. It hasn't changed for thousands of years. His weapon is deception. And that's what his ministers, his offspring do. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. As the father, so the sons. Jesus, speaking to the unbelieving Jews of his day in John 8 said, You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. You see what he's saying? He's saying, you're the seed of the serpent. You're not the seed of the woman. You desire what your father desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and you're trying to kill me. He does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. And you bear his image. So smooth talk and flattery and and deception, those are Satan's stock in trade. And what does he lie about? He lies about the word of God and the character of God. Genesis 3, 1. Has God really said 
you shall not eat from any tree in the garden. That was a perversion of the word of God who had actually said, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. But Satan also launched an assault on God's character. It was an attempt to make God appear angry and stingy. Did God say you can't eat from any tree rather than what God really was, which is joyful and generous? You may surely eat of every tree except this one, which is mine. And when the woman responded with the true words of God, Satan then began to twist God's word and then finally to outright deny it. You will not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He said, God's lied to you, woman. You can be like him and he knows it and he doesn't want that. God is not good and glorious as you think. He's insecure and selfish. But God had spoken truth and Satan was the one who lied. And when Adam and Eve ate from the tree, they didn't become like God. They became became even less like God than they were before. Fearful, mortal, degenerate, decaying. God is life, and they became death. God is good, and they became evil. God is blessed, and they became cursed. And so does everyone who believes Satan's lies regarding God's word and God's character. So Paul says to us this morning, don't be naive, susceptible to Satan's deceits. Know this book. Hold it fast Don't let anyone take it away from you. Don't let anyone rip the word of truth out of your hands and out of your heart. Know this book and know and trust its author. He is good and he is kind and he is glorious and he is exceedingly holy. This is a book about God and in this book you can know him. You can know what he's really like and what he really loves and what he really hates and what he's really done and what he's really going to do. Know this book and know this God, and don't let anyone lie to you about either one. Third, Paul highlights Satan's opposition. And by that I mean, Paul tells us how to oppose Satan and his lying ministers. Verse 19, for your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Now, the beginning of this verse is strange. Paul says, for or because your obedience is known to all, therefore, I I rejoice over you. And verse 19 is given as the reason or the grounds of the admonition in verses 17 and 18. In other words, Paul's reasoning in this passage goes like this. Watch out for false teachers. Avoid them because your obedience is known to all. And I think the connection is this. I think the obedience of the Roman church was famous, Paul says, as was their faith, Paul said in Romans 1.8. Their reputation 
amongst the, the Mediterranean world was pristine, and that had two consequences. Number one, it made them a prime target for Satan's attacks. Satan doesn't attack disobedient, faithless churches. He already owns them. What would be the point in attacking them? There's nothing to gain. Satan attacks obedient, faithful churches, hence Paul's admonition. But second, because of their great reputation for obedience and faith, it would be a travesty if they would fall prey to his lies. He would bring shame upon the gospel throughout the Roman world. The church at Rome will soon be the center of the Christian world. Maybe Paul suspects this, and this is the cause of his warning. At any rate, he assures them that he has heard of their obedience, and he rejoices over it. But then he gives them a way of opposing Satan and his lies. Be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Earlier, you'll remember, Paul said that they that it was the naive who were susceptible to the deception of false teachers. Now Paul simply says, so don't be naive. Be wise, be discerning. Paul sounds very much like Jesus here, who told his disciples, behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And the very next words that Jesus uttered were, and beware of men. In other words, the way that you guard against the lies of Satan and his offspring, his ministers, is by knowing that this is what he does. Just mark it down. Satan will tempt you to distrust and ultimately to disown this book. It's going to happen. And it's going to happen through divisive, smooth-talking, self-worshipping agents who will try to convince you to be offended at the gospel of Christ. So be ready for it. Because this church is developing a reputation in the community as well. I hope. I hope that it would be said of this church that we are obedient and faithful. Which means the same two things that were true of the Roman church are true of us. We are a prime target for his attacks. And if we fall, think about what would happen to the reputation of Christ in the gospel in Nixa. We're not playing games here. Be on your guard. Finally, Paul highlights Satan's certain doom. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Let me briefly address three problems with this promise and then we'll close. First, or rather three apparent problems that are no problems. It's no problem that Paul says that the God of peace will crush Satan rather than the seed of the woman who is Jesus. Whatever the son does, so does the father. And though it may seem strange to refer to God as the God of peace in reference to his crushing of Satan, like why not the God of war or the God of battle or the God of victory? But this too, I think, can be resolved when we recognize that true peace for the church lies only on the other side of the defeat of all of God's and our enemies. In other words, the crushing of God's supreme enemy, who is Satan, is an act of peace on behalf of his people. Second, it is no problem that Paul says God will crush Satan under our 
feet rather than the feet of Christ, who is the true seed of the woman. Though Christ decisively defeated Satan at the cross on behalf of Christians, we didn't have anything to do with that. Yet he is presently defeating Satan through the work of Christians. That is through the gospel advancement of the church. As the church goes forth in all of its gospel power, the forces of Satan are driven back. And and Christ's head just presses harder and harder and harder on Satan's head. Christians, in other words, share in the serpent-crushing victory of Christ through faith. And Christians extend this serpent-crushing victory of Christ through the proclamation of the gospel. Third, it is no problem that Paul says God will soon crush Satan under our feet, even though Paul wrote that 2,000 years ago, and Satan's been roaming around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour ever since. That's no problem. We dealt with the, the issue of imminence back in Romans 13. You remember at the end of that chapter where Paul said that the night is far gone, the day is at hand. Christ is almost back. Paul says, because imminence, you'll remember, is not measured with a calendar. It's measured with a Bible. It's not measured by our reckoning of time. It's measured by God's reckoning of time. The God for whom a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. It is true then that the final crushing of Satan is near. It's at hand. It's soon. It's any moment because no further prophetic conditions must be fulfilled before God sends his son back in blazing glory to consume his enemies and crush the head of the serpent. Then the Bible says the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan will be cast into the lake of fire where he will be tormented day and night forever and ever along with all of his offspring. Those whose names are not found written in the book of life. But until that time, Paul gives the church a promise. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is with you. Until that day when God finally crushes the head of the serpent, the serpent will continue to rage. He will continue to bruise the heel of the children of God. In other words, until God finally casts Satan into the lake of fire, he will rage like a cornered snake, just striking out at everyone within reach. In other words, there will be false teachers who will come and whisper lies into your ears. There will be accusers who will charge you with sin that has already been paid for by Christ and seek to drive you to despair. There will be temptations sent from Satan to try to entice your flesh. Until that day, Satan will prowl around like a roaring lion and he wants to devour you. You can count on it. So don't let him. Don't be naive. Be wise in what is good. What's that? This. Be innocent as to what is evil. What's that? Don't touch the fruit God said that you shouldn't touch. But something else is true. In all of these battles with Satan and the world and the flesh, you are never alone. 
The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is with you, and his foot is on the head of the serpent, and it is ready to press down. Satan cannot destroy you. Indeed, he cannot even touch you, but it turns out for your good. So you have nothing to fear, you have only to fight. And how do you do that? Know the word of God. Satan has one tactic and one tactic only. Has God said? Number two, hold fast to the gospel of God. Believe it. Obey it. Cling to it. Don't let anyone make it a scandal in your eyes. It's not a scandal. It's our only hope. And number three, trust the grace of the son of God. This is how the seed of the woman, the saints of God, overcome the dragon, as we sang earlier. They conquered him by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives, even unto death. Let me pray for you. Our Father, we are a people who are assaulted on every side by the world, the flesh, and the devil. And I pray that you will strengthen us for the battle. Strengthen us for the battle today, this week, this year. By your Holy Spirit, I pray that you will cause us to be wise as to what is good. To know the word of God. To not let anyone cause the gospel to be a scandal, an offense in our eyes. But rather we will cling to the gospel of God. And we will hope in the presence and the grace of the Son of God who is with us and who causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. I pray that you will continue to cause your word to speak words of hope and comfort and conviction and encouragement to your people as we go out from here this morning. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.